Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 31 in our series for 2014. And today's date is the 15th of August. And Leon, this week we've got a double interview. Well, it's with Lysandra Stevens from All Collections and uh, Naomi Ingleton from the Myrtleford Butter Factory. And they're going to be talking to us about how they use social media for their business, how their business has actually grown as a result of social media, and they don't even advertise anymore. No, that's right. They're not spending large amounts of money. Well, the other factor, of course, is you've got a company like Myrtleford Butter Factory, which is highly specialised natural product, and they sell all over the world. Uh, it's far better than advertising. That's right. And so social media has actually changed everything, and it's changing businesses. So let's have a chat to Lysandra Stevens and Naomi Ingleton. Lysandra, you at All Collections, you use social media to attract people. Is that right? Yeah, we um, social media is a big a big thing for collections. We have a massive fan base through Facebook, Twitter. Um, Instagram. So if we want to promote a product or, you know, a sale that we have on, we use social media to do that. That's pretty much our only form of advertising. And so many people follow your, you, I mean, you're an interior design company. So, I mean, so many people follow it. Is that for, for, are they from all over Australia? Well, it's funny. Our Facebook started off just as a fan site and um, yeah, people would just join it because yeah, it was just our fan page. And then slowly, I guess, as we entered um, into, you know, the interior design world, we've used it to, you know, promote um, our online homeware store as well as our interior design business. But at the same time, still keeping that, you know, that fan kind of feel to it. Right. And, and do you have a presence on Twitter? Yes, we do. Twitter, um, Twitter's we find is one of those things that you know when the block was on, it was it was a really good way to interact instantly with our fans. And when you know the block was on air, you know we could answer questions back and forth. Um, so yeah, Twitter's still a big part, but it's probably um, it's probably not as big as you know what Facebook is for us. Facebook allows a much more intimate contact, doesn't it? With fans? Yeah, I mean, we, we get people writing questions to us all the time about, it can be about anything ranging from, you know, what clothes we're wearing to a product that we have on our website to design consults to just nice fan emails. And we make it, you know, our goal to write back to, you know, to at least 99% of, um, you know, the people that, that connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Does it, does it generate sales? Oh, absolutely. We've got on Facebook. We've got two. Um, we've got a fan page, so Elise and Lissandra, and then we've also got a collections page. Um, so the collections page is is you know geared towards our um, online store, promoting products. We put mood boards up. We put sales up. We put ideas for presents, and you know, so people that go to that site are purely looking probably just to buy. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't pump it through our fan page as well because we've got, I think we're almost up to 180,000 fans there. So that's our biggest following. So if we, if we want to have the biggest reach, we'll go through our fan page through Facebook. And it's extraordinary that you don't rely on advertising at all. 
No. I know it's it's weird. You know, my mum used to own a, a business and the way she used to have to advertise in, you know, the local paper and, you know, letterbox drops and, and yeah, now we're in, that, in, in this new world where well, we're fortunate enough that we don't have to really pay to advertise anywhere else because we've kind of, yeah, got it at our fingertips. Now, you guys are based in Adelaide. So, I mean, do you have fans from around Australia, around the world? Yeah, we've actually got fans from around the world. It's weird. We get um, Sky High's airing in – Sky High – well, the block airs around in – I think airs in 20 other countries around the world. So, yeah, we just had someone from Dubai write to us a couple of days ago on our fan page. And, yeah, we get fans from all over the world, a lot from New Zealand and, yeah, certainly from all around Australia, just – just because we live in Adelaide, it doesn't mean, yeah, that there are our main fans. It's certainly not the case. And in fact, uh, are most of your fans from outside of Adelaide? I don't know, to be honest. I, know, well, I do know that our biggest range, I think, is from 15 to 30 year old girls. That's our biggest fan base. Um, and yeah, I, I think that it's it's fairly it's probably a fairly even spread from around Australia to be honest. Could your business now survive without social media? Um, no, I think if you know social media was to, to end today, I don't. We'd just have to come up with other forms of advertising. But you know whether we could afford to pay for you know some some advertising fees are just astronomical, and whether we could afford to you know pay to advertise. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd probably not to be honest. I have to ask you though. I mean, would you? How many? How much resources does that take up? I mean, you would need someone monitoring the social media constantly, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, well, I'm pretty much monitoring Facebook. You know, we do it obviously on a daily basis and monitor it, monitor it throughout the day. It doesn't take up. You know, it's kind of you put the laptop on at the end of the day and you write back to all your fans. And you know, the the beauty about Facebook is that we can pre-schedule posts. So I can sit down for a night and, and pre-schedule the post for the week so I don't have to be on there every day, you know, putting up a post or an advert or a promotion. or So, yeah, I can pretty much put one on, say, schedule it for 9 o'clock on a Tuesday morning and, yeah, it will be there. That's amazing. That's amazing. Mm. So and, and so it doesn't actually take up more resources than any anything else. No, no. And it's um, – it doesn't feel like work when you when you're going through social media uh, to to do work, um, you know, to respond to your fans and keep that connection out there. And it's, I think the the struggle, well, not the struggle, but the thing for us is to keep things relevant and to keep people wanting to stay on your page instead of unliking you. So, to keep things interesting. I mean, now that we're not on TV anymore, that's going to be you know the thing for us is is to make our fans stay on our page. Compared with pre-Facebook Twitter, how's your business grown? I mean, is it has there been a notable increase in, well, in we traffic? we didn't have the business before social media. This is all pretty new to us. Yeah, but did, did you, you were advertising on TV and now you're not? No, we were never advertising on TV. We were oh, police okay. officers before, no. We began with Facebook. We, yeah, it's, it's a fairly new business. It's only about a year old. Okay. Lissandra, it's been terrific talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries at all. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. See you. Okay, bye. Bye. And now let's talk to Naomi Ingleton at the Myrtleford Butter Factory in the countryside outside uh, Melbourne and Victoria. 
It's a very interesting company, small, family-run, Naomi and her mother, and they do some very specialised butter production, and they have customers among some of the greatest chefs in the world, and a lot of the contact is through social media, as Naomi does explain. We spoke to her by phone, Skype at our end, and uh, Naomi was in her office, so apologies for a bit of background noise. Naomi Ingleton, at the Butter Factory, you you make extensive use of social media, is that right? I try to. Well, tell us about it. Well, we, because I think because we're located so far from a major city, it's easier for us to use social media to directly contact our customers. So we use Twitter, we use Instagram, we use Pinterest, we use um, Facebook, and all of those just to just to really personalize our business to our customers. We're in Myrtleford in northeast Victoria. So uh, you're you're very far from uh, from the cities. In that case. We're about three and a half hours northeast of Melbourne. Uh, how, how successful is that using social media? I think it's really successful. It's you know it's obviously something that you really need to work at. It's not something that you can do effectively without being personal. Um, I think particularly with Twitter, people want to be talking to you, not someone else who is, you know, like a social media manager. That's okay if you want to send information out, but I think if you want to engage your customers, you need to be doing it yourself. How much of a time does it take up? Well, it takes up a little bit of time, but it's, I make it part of my day. So I don't see it as taking up time because for me, you know, it's a small business, it's a small family business and it, we, it, it, we make, you know, work is part of our life. It's not a job that I go to every day, it's what I do. For us, you know, part, the social media part of it is all part of our day. So it's a small business. What the product you're selling uh, specialises? What what's your the what would attract people to you for, in the first place? I think the the quality of the product definitely. We're one of the Australia's premium butter makers. Um, it is it is a very niche market product in the way that we make it. We naturally ferment our cream. It's all handmade. It's all hand wrapped. And it is a premium product that, pre, you know, the, the best restaurants in the country are using. So it is something that we, um, that there's very few of us in the world that are making. Do you, do you advertise, do you use advertising as well or is, does social media fill that gap? I, you know, I did use advertising, but I actually prefer social media. Why is that? Um, because I can target the people that really appreciate our product. And uh, so how many followers, uh, how many fans do you have on Facebook? How many followers do you have on Twitter? Tell us about it. I think on Twitter, we I talk to about, I don't know, well, I don't talk to every single one of them, but I do if they engage me. We've got about 3,500, I think, people that follow us on Twitter. Um, and and then Mum's also on Twitter as well, so she's got a few as she's got a couple of, and we also we we have, uh, I think about two thousand people on Facebook. And are they from all over Australia or? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So national, yeah, because our product is available nationally, and we do lots of mail order, so people, you know, wherever they live in Australia, can contact us, and also international. Um, we our product is quite well known overseas within the high end restaurant community. So we're talking to chefs. Um, you know, in everywhere around the world, and foodies. So on social media, yeah, absolutely. And so, how? Where? Where are the? Where are the furthest? Where are the foodies? I mean, where, which? What countries do they come from? Um, all over. So I had a Churchill Fellowship a couple of years ago when I was working in Sweden and France and, and got to go and work with Noma's Buttermaker over in Sweden for a couple of weeks. So we've got quite a few Nordic followers um, that we talk to. And uh, in the States, I'm working with a Buttermaker over there. So I talk to lots of people over in America and the UK. And does it generate sales? It does. In the, in the fact that when people are asking about products in Australia uh, from those countries that have a relationship with those people, that they're, they're referred to us. So you'd be talking to some of the best known chefs in the world then? Absolutely. Heston Blumenthal, people like that. <laughs> Heston doesn't use Twitter. <laughs> so, but we, you know, we talk to Bruno Lubay at the grain store in the UK, um, you know, lots of people like that. That's that's amazing. Do you think your business uh, has thrived with social, because of social media? I really think so, yeah, de- definitely, because you can form those personal relationships. And that that means you're getting feedback from your customers as well. So you, you know, the, do the chefs come and say, well, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And you can get feedback directly from your customers and they will, you know, and I don't... I don't see Twitter and social media as a negative thing. I see it as a really positive thing because you can you can really micromanage your business and your customers from real time. Um, and and particularly, you know, I see big business like Qantas and things like that that they're actually really on the ball with Twitter. Um, and I kind of contact those kind of customers or those kind of companies on Twitter myself because it's easier than ringing. Where, where do you see the future for your business with social media? Um, I think that I think we'll continue to do what we will do um, and engaging our customers and, and talking to them in real time and letting them know about our factory and our business philosophy um, and all of that on on social media. I am just I've just had a meeting this morning about working doing a little bit more work with Facebook because we kind of haven't focused on, on the Facebook side of it. Uh, we've been more Twitter focused. Um, and also working on Pinterest and, and, and Instagram more with business than personal. Naomi, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And now we're going to have a chat to our economist, Stephen Koulis, all about the growing debt levels in Australia and the implications it has for banks. Stephen Koulis, uh, debt is rising here, and that is a red flag for our banks, isn't it? It probably is. We've got debt rising again over the last 12 months. It did slow off in 2012-13 in the hangover of the GFC, but with low interest rates, people are taking on more and more debt. And at the moment, it's not a concern, but, uh, and it's a very important but, with the unemployment numbers that we saw last week jumping to a 12-year high of 6.4%, 
we've got a situation where perhaps, just perhaps, we've got a concern for the banks because the biggest problem the banks have with a high level of debt is not so much whether interest rates go up or down, uh, these sorts of things, is if people lose their job. If unemployment goes up, then people cannot uh, repay their debt and that's when the banks have a problem, that's when we have an economic problem. And this is what happened in the US? The US, the UK, economies like that, uh, well, there were many reasons for the GFC and the intensity of the recessions that were there. The critical issue was that unemployment rates basically doubled in the UK and the US. They got to double digit rates, got to 10%. And while interest rates were cut to basically zero, they were down to zero. The problem for the banks and why the banks became insolvent, apart from the subprime loans and things, was that people just couldn't pay their mortgages, that they were out of a job. And when you're out of a job, you earn no income and you can't make your debt. You hand over the keys back to the bank. That is the situation where the banks are in trouble and the overall rate of economic growth is curtailed because people don't have the money to spend. The banks don't lend to anyone else because they've got such a large number of bad debts and your economy dives into recession. So what do you see ahead then for the banks? I mean, would they be now becoming more cautious about lending? Yeah, well, look, one of the things that is good news about the current situation is that the banks did become more cautious after the GFC anyway. So they, they have been a little bit more prudent in who they've lent to, how much they've lent to, the loan-to-valuation ratios have, have in fact changed. But now when they're seeing this period where unemployment's creeping up. It's edging high. The economy is probably back below trend having started the year on a good note. We've got the terms of trade falling, hurting the economy. And I'm sure their economics departments are telling the, uh, the risk management people in the banks that, hey, there's, a, there's some um, concerns coming here. Be a bit more prudent. You don't want to be having a big book of uh, mortgages out there just when the economy is slowing and unemployment risks going even higher. So I think, um, I think the banks would be wise to just be prudent. Look, it's not a disaster yet, but uh, it would be uh, good advice just to be very cautious in how much they're lending. That would also apply to how much they're lending to businesses as well, wouldn't it? Oh, indeed. Of course, the other um, uh, aspect of this is, of course, business uh, growth business credit and uh, how the economy is going. And, and we've seen, again, mixed news on business sentiment, uh, business confidence measures. It's been, again, it's okay. Not strong, but not weak either. But um, And business credit has picked up again in the last uh, few months as well. But the banks would want to be careful not to have too much leverage, too much debt out there, because, of course, businesses fold a lot more easily than mortgages do. And while house prices are still going up, that's, that's all for the consumer. And the banks perhaps don't have quite as much concern if house prices are going up. Because if someone defaults on their mortgage, they can at least get their money back when they sell the house. On the business, it's a bit uh, uh, more difficult as well. But the business credit growth is something of a concern for them. And I'm sure the banks are just looking at their whole portfolio, having a look at where the economy is going, and just perhaps being a little bit more cautious about uh, their lending practices, which, of course, is actually a dampening influence on the economy. So it becomes a self-fulfilling issue on the soft side. So if the economy is already softening, perhaps in the second half of this year we see some downside risks to growth. Now, on this unemployment figure, I mean, that was 6.4%. I mean, that was the highest in 12 years. It took everyone by surprise. Uh, do you expect it to go much higher? Gosh, well, we need the economy to grow above 3% for it not to go higher. And we know that in the June quarter, we get the June quarter GDP numbers in early September. They're going to be showing annual GDP coming from 3.5 back down to about 3%. It's going to be a soft number. We know that. Um, the question is what happens in the second half of the year. My, my hunch is that we probably won't see the unemployment rate get much above 6.5%. But that's assuming that the 
air pocket for growth, if you like, in the June quarter was just that and that we resumed stronger growth in the September and December quarters. But the risk is that this terms of trade fall, this persistently strong Aussie dollar still in the low 90s, it's not falling below 90, which is frustrating the Reserve Bank. The impasse over the budget is causing concerns. Uh, Mr Hockey's talking about perhaps a mini budget before uh, Christmas to trim some more money out of the economy. The, the risks are certainly escalating that this 6.4 unemployment peak in that employment rate will not be the peak and in fact we could be moving higher. I don't think it's likely but the risk is increasing that we will see a number higher than that before the end of the year. And what would that what impact would that have on the credit scene? Well that, it, bad news for credit but the Reserve Bank would be looking at that too and with wages growth con, you know, particularly moderate at the moment there would be an increasing chance of rate cuts. The market's starting to uh, well, after the number, after the jobless number uh, price in a greater risk of an interest rate cut we're not, we don't have one fully priced in yet, but all it would take is another month or two of poor in, uh, employment numbers, unemployment rate going up, a low CPI figure uh, for the next quarter when that comes out in a couple of months' time, and that would open the door for a rate cut, particularly if the Aussie dollar is still above 90 cents. Look, it's not the core forecast at this stage, but the risk is increasing that we will see rates cut if the unemployment rate continues to rise. But all the futures markets are predicting a rate rise in 2015. In 2015, they're talking rate hikes. Um, look, I think they're looking at the US. Well, we know the US economy is improving, and the Fed will... Well, probably will be hiking interest rates in 2015. That's uh, what the market's pricing in there. And I think that just parlays back into our own futures market. You know, the curious thing about uh, other, well, a similar economy, I guess, is New Zealand. They have hiked four times. And people are looking at that and thinking, well, Reserve Bank of New Zealand have hiked uh, you know, quite a lot in the last six months. Their economy's arguably stronger than ours. They've got a bigger inflation risk and lower unemployment than Australia. So does that lesson from New Zealand play into Australia, particularly with house prices still going up? So th- there's many moving parts to this. Uh, the bottom line, I suspect, is that rates are on hold for another, I don't know, three, six, or goodness me, even 12 months as the market ebbs and flows about what's happening in the US, what's happening in China, what's happening to the dollar, and as we mentioned, what's happening to credit growth. Is credit growth just too strong and too many risks for the banks out there? Now, with with those risks to credit growth, what impact do you think that will have on house prices? Look, well, if the banks start tightening up their credit, being a little bit more cautious about how they are lending and the risks associated with that, then I think, of course, house prices will moderate. Because, again, one of the, the, there's two aspects of, of, of house price growth. One is the willingness of the consumer to borrow, and that seems to be pretty strong at the moment. The other one is the willingness of mortgage providers to lend. And that, as we've just been discussing, is perhaps, just perhaps starting to moderate, that the banks will be a bit more cautious. So if the banks are making it harder for you and me to borrow money, to leverage up, to buy a property, then perhaps we'll get some um, uh, slowing in house price growth. And the other thing to critically remember too is that, of course, um, uh, the number of new houses that are being built and will soon be finished um, through the building approvals numbers coming into a finished house has been very, very strong. So we're getting a supply side response. There's a lot of building going on in terms of uh, apartments and the like in the major cities, that might just take a bit of the heat out of the house price market. I think house prices, I don't think they're going to fall or fall much, but they're certainly going to moderate. And meaning they won't rise as fast? Probably won't rise as fast. I think what we need for a house price fall is, again, as we've just been touching on, is the unemployment rate to rise sharply. As I said, I think that's unlikely, but if we were to see, say, gosh, six and three quarters or 7% in the unemployment rate in the next six to 12 months, that would be a massive problem for the house price market and banks, or if we were to see rate hikes come unexpectedly. And again, that's increasingly unlikely with the numbers like we're seeing. Now, do you expect the Reserve Bank could be watching these debt levels very closely? They are. Look, interestingly, in the last 
couple of years, they've been silent on, on credit, or largely silent. They haven't really spoken about it much. If we go back pre-GFC, when housing credit was growing at 20%, you know, massive growth in, in housing credit, we heard you know, the RBA uh, at every opportunity, every statement that the governor made, uh, every quarterly statement, and uh, they were talking about that being a concern to them. Now, they've been silent because it hasn't been a problem, because unemployment's been below 6% for the last 10 years, the economy's been doing okay, they've cut interest rates to you know, manage the whole business cycle and the But I think the RBA will probably want to start ramping their discussion up a little bit if we do see um, ongoing issues of accelerating credit growth at a time when the labour market is softening or even deteriorating. And the RBA would certainly see those debt levels, therefore, as a red flag for the banks. Would be a red flag for the banks, and that's a huge issue. And you've got to remember, too, that there's the other aspect of the regulatory issues that are going on with the uh, review of the banking and financial sector. We're not quite sure where it's going to lead to next. They're they're obviously longer-term structural issues for the bank, but I think that David Murray and others would be looking at what's happening now with the ease of credit, if you like, or the strong growth in house prices and the pickup in credit as being an issue that they'd want to be very cautious in managing. Stephen Coors, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Cheers. So, Leon, the economy has some problems and uh, they're not getting better anytime quickly. No, but it's, uh, it's been a huge week in news, Gary. Indeed it has. Lots of profits, some losses. Well, before we get on to the profits, let's look at what's happening around the world. First, China's industrial production rose 9% year on year, which is actually a good sign, Gary, and retail sales are up 12.2%. Yeah, that's very interesting. The Chinese are spending at home. And good signs, good figures out of the US. Uh, US employers in June advertised the most monthly job openings in more than 13 years. They posted 4.6 million, 4.67 million jobs in June. That's up 2.1% from May's total of 4.58 million. And the number of advertised openings was the highest since February 2001. Gee, that's pretty impressive, you know. They, they really look as though they're on the way back. That's right, that's right. But there are worries in Europe. Uh, investment sentiment in Germany has fallen to its lowest level in nearly two years. Uh, the widely watched Investor Confidence Index calculated the ZEW by the ZEW Economic Institute fell by 18.5 points to 8.6 points in August. That's the lowest since December 2012. And all of this comes as figures show that industrial production in the 18 countries that share the euro fell for a second straight month in June. And that tells us the economic recovery might have faltered again in the second quarter. Uh, The European Union Statistics Agency said output from factories, mines and utilities fell 0.3%. That's unchanged compared with June 2013. And the other factor there, of course, is the problem in uh, Ukraine and the threat to uh, energy supplies. That's right. And uh, meanwhile, um, Greece's battered economy is poised to emerge from a six-year recession in coming months after data shows the economy has grown on a quarterly basis for the first time since the start of the European debt crisis in early 2010. And figures from the Hellenic Statistical Authority show the recession has eased sharply in the second quarter of the year. Gross domestic product is coming in at an annual pace of 0.2%. Greece is on the um, growth path again. Yeah, I'd like to see what the employment figures would be like. That's, um, it's, uh, they still approve a worry, I think. 
Yeah, meanwhile in Australia, Joe Hockey is in all sorts of trouble at the moment, Gary, because he's saying that poor people don't drive and therefore won't be affected by the fuel excise rise. Yeah, he makes Flash Gordon look like a nun. That's right, that's right. Anyway, he's been urged to reboot his budget and scrap the unpopular $7 GP co-payment by former Liberal Treasurer Peter Costello. He says governments have to cut their losses. And Costello, the government should reboot the whole argument by bringing forward the next intergenerational report, which highlights long-term pressures on government spending. And it should also dump measures unlikely to pass the Senate, like the $7 co-payment. He says it's just not going to happen, so we have to move on. Yeah, and Costello is a pragmatic politician. He's absolutely right, because every time Joe says something, he puts his foot in his mouth. That's right, and he's also told Joe Hockey to stop blaming business for not backing the budget. I mean, when you think about it, business isn't meant to be a cheer squad for the government. No way, no. Business has got business to look after. <laughs> Meanwhile, hockey's facing renewed pressure from the Palmer United Party leader, Clive Palmer, to split the suite of measures associated with the repeal of the mining tax. And Palmer's told Hockey that if he separates the measures into separate bills, there'd be enough support to scrap the mining caps. But they'll continue to oppose the Medicare co-payment, resuming full indexation, higher, index- higher education charges, and the abolition of three of the eight spending measures envisioned to be paid for by the failed mining tax. And the problem, though, Gary, is that the government's unlikely to back down on the scrapping of these other measures, like the school kids bonus, the low-income superannuation contribution, and the income support bonus. So there's still a fight with the pup. Yes, and that's a combined worth uh, $9.6 billion over four years. Interesting news, though, out of, from coming from Woolworths, Gary. They've opened a new supermarket and devoted entirely to online customers. Yeah, that's right. In Sydney, it's a trial, and they'll probably go into, come into Melbourne and uh, Brisbane as it's well. It's a completely dedicated online store. It's in the Sydney suburb of Mascot, and it's actually a test case for the retailer ahead of the several more outlets in the key other markets to lift efficiency. Uh, and push online but their venture into home improvement has sucked, suffered another setback uh, with the business widening its loss in fiscal 2014 from the previous year in fiscal 2014 Woolworths home improvement business made up predominantly of masters and home timber and hardware recorded an earnings before interest loss interest taxation loss of 169 million that's up from 138.9 million in 2013 i think the point to be taken here is that west farmers in both coles and bunnings uh, are very very tough tough competitors that's right and, and woolworths doesn't expect to break even for the home improvement business uh, until 2016 meanwhile uh, business finance commitments uh, jumped in june we were talking about this with uh Stephen Koulis. personal finances slipped but data show total business finance commitments rose season adjusted 12.1 percent to 46 point Four nine five billion. So business, more business are taking out loans. Yeah, in fact, uh, business is now more uh, in debt than uh, the public. That's right. It's uh, uh, it's driven largely by revolving credit facilities, which rose by 38% in June. And business conditions have soared to a four-year high in July on the back of a surge in construction activity. Business confidence has also strengthened, according to the NAB monthly business survey, and that jumped to eight points in the month compared with two points in June, suggesting a strong start to the third quarter. But consumer confidence has slumped amid concerns over global tension, lower share prices and high unemployment. And I think also, Gary, wages have stopped. The latest figures show that wages have only risen 2.6%. Well, inflation is up 3%, so workers have gone backwards. Yeah, in fact, there's, there's a, a pay cut in there. That's right. And the weekly ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell sharply to 108.5 in the week ending August 10. It fell steeply in May, dipping below 100 over the past poorly received federal 
budget. It did recover, but uh, this has uh, handed back or that uh, gone back to that scene. Yeah, and remember also now unemployment's up to six point seven. Yeah, yeah, and that that would help hurt confidence as well. Oh, on the other hand, the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment actually rose three point eight percent to ninety eight point four. So. Um, uh, let's just watch this space. And now for all the profits, Gary, and uh, Australia's biggest bank, the CBA, delivered a record cash profit of $8.68 billion. That's up 12%. Suncor's net profit soared 46.88% to $730 million. But Goodman Fielder swung to a loss of $405.1 million. Online car classifies business car sales.com is driving into the general classifieds market with the launch of Pitchy.com after posting a 14% rise in full-year net profit. Um, Oz Minerals posted a loss of uh, $7.4 million. JB Hi-Fi recorded net profit of $128.36 million. That's up 10.29%. That's really that's very interesting because JB was having some problems and uh, look as though they were well back on track. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, But that, that's in Bendigo and Adelaide Bank has lifted its full-year cash profit, uh, $382.3 million. That's up 9.9%. Logistics company McAleese uh, says a healthy fourth-quarter performance has pushed up, up to the range of 82 to $85 million full-year earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortisation. And, uh, I mean, that's quite significant. But Online Jobs Outsourcer Freelancer has posted a $729,000 net loss for 2014 and reported an operating net loss of 600000 Slater & Gordon, the law firm, reported net profit of $61.1 million. That's up $47.2 million. But what if posted a net profit of $43.2 million. That's down 15.4% on the $51 million recorded in the previous year. The online isn't the bonanza everybody thinks. You need to run your show very, very efficiently. And that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, an interview with... John Winning from Appliances Online. Yeah, that's a very interesting company. And uh, John is a young entrepreneur and uh, looks as though he's really on riding a rocket ship. That's Road took his father's old business and uh, turned it around completely. Anyway, that's it for us this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. 